0: I wanted to make neuroscience like approachable for our patients and the people who work here. You know, it's not all—it's not all scary. It's—it's it's actually quite beautiful and intriguing.
1: how Homo Sapiens. In this week's Epilepsy Sparks Insights podcast, we bring to you part two with pediatric epileptologist and head of neurosciences at Cook Children's Hospital, Scott Perry. We start with Scott's answer to a question about changing the care route of another clinician's patient for the better through the Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium. Scott also tells us about some of the disparities in epilepsy care identified through the PERC, followed by a chat about brain art and some highly regarded artists who enable the world to see epilepsy through a new light.
0: I am Scott Perry. I am uh, a pediatric epileptologist and the head of neurosciences at the Jane and John Justin Institute for Mind Health at Cook Children's in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, my areas of interest are Predominantly epilepsy surgery and uh, rare genetic epilepsies.
1: And so, what happens when you do find out you contradict somebody, or vice versa? And, and can that be prior to you know making a decision upon somebody's care, and you actually impact the choice? Uh, for patient's care.
0: I, oh I, I absolutely think you can. I mean we've got a few examples um, all, already. Um, you know we got the American Epilepsy Society meeting coming up and the Pediatric State of the Art Symposium uh, I will be chairing and several of the um, lectures are focused on uh, are built around things that PERC has done. So for instance the Early Life Epilepsy Database is one that you know really showed that Um, In the evaluation of early-life epilepsy things like genetic testing are incredibly valuable in fact more valuable than a lot of the metabolic uh, And other lab testing that we we used to do, you know So that's kind of a practice changing Mm -hmm. thought that you know If you did an MRI and you don't have an answer then genetic testing is very high yield and that's where we should go Um, the infantile spasms database um, you know, looked at the, the different types of treatments, ACTH, prednisone, bigavage, and things like that, and looked at um, whether the standard of care was being offered. And specifically, and this will be highlighted in one of the talks, we actually went back, uh, they actually went back and they looked at who was getting the standard of care and actually found that like, you know, non-whites, there were disparities, non-whites were less likely to get what we would consider the standard of care. Um, and and these were happening at, you know, this was happening at our at our consortium. So we're talking about good centers, you know, and we unveiled it. Oh, my goodness, look what's happening based on the data we're collecting.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up. That is one of my passions, actually, to help us, you know, close this ridiculous un- you know, really unforgivable gaps between different ethnicities and races and stuff. It's absolutely nuts. And I think only when we, you know, collect this data and prove to people who might find it harder to accept can we actually put into, you know, into practice things which will help eliminate these ridiculous and totally unacceptable differences in level of care. I
0: did, a, um, I did an abstract that I presented last year at AES looking at disparities in surgical care. Because there have been multiple papers that will tell you that you know uh, non-whites are less likely to be offered surgery, um, and the way that those studies are often done is they use insurance databases. At least in the U.S., they use insurance databases where you know you use your ICD-10 code for intractable epilepsy, and then you look for the CPT code of craniotomy, and that's how you figure out that a person had the diagnosis and got surgery. And you know they often you know show that disparity. But my question was, well, is it as easy? Is the answer as easy as the race or ethnicity determined whether they got surgery or is there something more to it? Did they get a different workup? And so because they didn't get all the same tests, they weren't considered candidates or whatever else. So we looked, and this is not perfect, but we looked at people that were at least referred to surgery. So if you got referred to surgery, was your workup any different based on your race or ethnicity? And the good news is, that there really were not significant differences in how the workups were done. What was a significant difference is that that non-white populations were four times more likely to decline the opportunity for epilepsy surgery when offered. So that tells me that's a target. That's something we have to address is, you know, why is that and, you know, what is that barrier and how can we help get over that barrier so this treatment that can be very effective is available? Uh, so I, I think I think that's an interesting finding. One of the things I want to look at next is regional in the United States and whether the evaluation is different depending on what region of the United States you are in and are there disparities racial or ethnic disparities by region in the U.S.
1: And also, I wonder, like, levels of education and, like, socioeconomic mm-hmm. background and things like that, I suppose they are possibly play, play a part as well?
0: Uh, they could, yeah. We, we um, you know, we don't collect all of those right now. We are looking at adding some data on um, kind of um, uh, some more social determinants of health um, to kind of help us uh parse that out a little bit better. Right now we look at their insurance type, whether it's a public or commercial insurance. We look at their distance from um, a surgical center, which gives us an idea if they're in an urban or a rural environment. Um, So we collect some of those, but not nearly as many as could be helpful um, to untangle that for sure. For
1: anybody listening, watching this, I think this is a perfect example of why collating data safely, securely, but also analyzing it in in different ways is so so important. I'm I'm reading this book actually at the moment about uh, statistics and data collection and how different interpretations are so easily so easy to do, um, and I think that's you know a good example of why we need many clinicians and researchers involved, isn't it, for inter- interpretation of this data?
0: It is, and like I said, when when you all work as a team, I mean, there's power in numbers, not just the number of people that are working, but just the sheer number of data points that are available, and you know you can get a quick You can get a quick answer Uh, you know the the database was never intended to collect everything we need to know there's too many variables it was intended to help a person ask a question and know right away like can we get an answer sometime soon you know like uh, people that are in the project with me will you know write me and say hey i want to look at corpus callosotomies you know and this is my question about them and i can look in the database and i can say okay we have 200 callosotomies, uh, which should be enough to answer the question you want to answer. So let's let's go down that. And if there's going to be some extra variables, we'll go get the other variables. But you know, it just it helps you put that together quickly. Um, and 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 because we're all you know all in the same study, uh, it just moves faster. Uh, and it's really rolling now that we're four years in. Um, you're really seeing it uh, take off.
1: Do you ever have a patients ask for you the- know sort of uh, answers relating to this specifically or do you you know do you have to say oh, do you know what? i'll go and check our database and then i can give you the answer
0: oh for sure yeah i mean you yeah, know we use it we, we use it um a couple ways so definitely so every site kind of has their own database right where they keep whatever mm-hmm. information they want and then our shared database has certain variables in it so i will see patients that will ask often you know what is you know what is you know what is your success rate, or how many of X procedure have you done? And you know I can look immediately in the database and, and give a correct answer. You know not a I'm guessing answer just based on my memory. Like this is the number that we have done, and these are the outcomes as we have them right now. Um, and I have used it. Um, I have used it kind of broadly based on some of the research we've done to just tell them, kind of what the national scope is. So I'll I'll go back to callosotomies, for instance. Um, We do callosotomies here uh, uh, using a a minimally invasive uh, way with endoscopy, um, whereas other sites use open craniotomies and other sites use laser ablation to do so, when we talk about that, you know, I talk about calisotomy and I say this is the way we do it here, it's done differently at other places, and these are what we know about the success rates of each of these different approaches. Um, so you can, you know, they, they have different risks, they have different benefits, you can weigh them. If, if, you know, the laser approach, because it has fewer risk, but it has a little bit less efficacy, if that's more appealing to you, then maybe my site's not the place you want to have that surgery, because we don't do it that way but this site does, and that's the place for you. Um, just to help people you know, get a better feel for the options that are available to them
1: by the way random random question that piece of art on your wall yeah is that by dana simmons uh
0: this one right here yep that was dana simmons
1: yeah 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 oh my gosh so i've i've known dana for quite a while i've got you know you? some of her stuff it's a very very small world everybody if you're listening check out dana, dana simmons online and we've got her stuff on epilepsy sparks website too as well but it's just it's amazing how she makes you know neurons beautiful because they are right for sure
0: i i am um I really very much love art, Uh, and so you know we're we're building this this new building for our institute uh, for mind health, and one of the things you know I wanted was that the art on the wall would reflect the neurosciences, and I wanted it to be and because I wanted it to be, uh, I I wanted to make neuroscience like approachable for our patients and the people who work here. You know, it's not all it's not all scary. It's it's actually quite beautiful and intriguing, like that that picture. Uh, You know, I want people to look at that and be like, you know, what is this? It is a Purkinje, you know, and we start talking, you know, from there. Um, So all of the, all of, uh, most of the art we have collected that will be in the lobby is by um, artists, first of all, that I found on Twitter for the most part, that have a connection to the neurosciences. They either do neuroscience-specific art or they have some connection um, to, um, to epilepsy. We have this huge mural that we're going to have that's uh, painted by a friend of mine, John Bramblett, who has epilepsy, and he is visually impaired, and he paints by touch, uh, and he just does fascinating stuff. Um, so look for that uh, around October of next year when it opens. Uh, we're actually, I'm hoping, going to have a website that actually has all of our neuro art collection on it so that people can kind of appreciate all these artists that are out there.
1: I actually have a friend um, called Stephanie and she's had um, laser ablation surgery. She's uh, eh, legally blind, um, but she's an incredible artist. And I just think, yeah. wow, how do you do that woman? It's just absolutely crazy. It's nothing, well, actually I say nothing neurological. The stuff to do with the human brain that she does. Maybe I'll send you a link, her stuff. She's also known as Afro Mom. Um, she lives in Florida. Absolutely amazing woman, what she does, yeah. So everyone else, check her out too, as well as Dana. And thank you so much, Scott. It's been glorious talking to you, especially after all this time. I feel like I kind of know you already. So um, if anybody wants to check you out, where should they go? twitter at the moment
0: <laughs> yeah the easiest place at the moment is on twitter at uh, at the notorious eeg
1: oh have you got your glasses on by the way your notorious eeg glasses
0: oh no these are not these are not my notorious eeg glasses those are those are at home <laughs>
1: so, so everyone knows they're engraved right they're,
0: yeah yes they are. they are i have i have glasses i have uh, custom custom purple vans that also have it on there that i usually wear around the meetings
1: Thank you to Scott for sharing with us his work with their perk, his appreciation of brain arts, and evidently being a really cool paediatric epileptologist. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.